Turn to our text this morning with me, please, which comes from the book of Obadiah as we'll be looking at our second sermon of this series, which we'll look at verses 10 through 16. Now, I warn you ahead of time that this sermon might go a little longer than usual, but what I will not do is apologize for that. As this is God's word that we are proclaiming, and we ought to have delight. We ought to be overjoyed to hear his word. And so please then look with me this morning at Obadiah verses 10 through 16 as we hear God's most holy word. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. Thus far is the reading of God's holy word. So this morning, brothers and sisters, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Obadiah and Last week we learned that Obadiah, which means servant of Yahweh, has been given a vision by Yahweh to declare to to Judah. And this message was to be a, a comforting message in which Obadiah reminds the people that God has not forgotten about them, that He cares for their safety, and that He will avenge the wrongs done to them. But the book itself and what it contains is the Lord's pronouncement of judgment and certain doom that will befall the Edomites. As the title of last sermon we said was The Power of God. And we said that it was because of God's power that this revelation of God, this vision of God given to Obadiah, can be declared with such certainty. Because we know that the Edomites did not think anyone would be able to touch them. They were protected and they felt secure in the mountains. And so they thought nobody could bring us down. But what did we say last week about the power of God? Well, one thing we said is that the power of God is absolute. And what does absolute power mean? It describes the power which God has to do all things, even things He could do, but chooses not to. And within that power is God's ordinate power, we said. 
And God's ordinate power is that which describes God's ability to actually do all that He has decreed. And so we said no man is able to run from the power of God no matter how secure the Edomites felt, no matter how deep in the crevices of the cave they hid, God being all-powerful, whose power is omnipresent, which means it extends everywhere at the same time, will by His mighty hand exact vengeance. It will vindicate His church and it will accomplish His sovereign will. Next we said that this revelation given to Obadiah will surely come to pass because God's power is infinite. We said God's power is infinite. And if it wasn't infinite, it would be conceivable that the Edomites could thwart this plan of God. If they could just find a stronger adversary than God, they could stop God's plan. But Judah, at this time, and Christians today alike, can take solace in the fact that we know that God's power is infinite. And because His power is infinite, it means that it is without measure. God's power is without measure. God's power is limitless. And we know by experience that man's is not. And now someone might want to raise their hand and say, hey, preacher, that's not true. God's power isn't limitless. Because if God can't sin or God can't lie, then it must mean that His power is not limitless. But we need to understand that God's power isn't limitless if He could do the opposite of His character. God's power isn't limitless if He can do the opposite of who He is. That, in fact, limits God's power. If God is able to act contrary to self, to do the opposite of who He has declared Himself to be, this doesn't uphold God's power. Rather, it diminishes God's power. It diminishes it. Because it demonstrates that God lacks self-control. That the Creator is controlled by His creation. And so God is limitless, and His power is limitless, to act in accordance with Himself. His power is limitless to act in accordance with who He is as God. And so we can know that God will never do the opposite of what He has promised to do. If He says He will destroy the Edomites, it will surely happen as God's power is infinite, which also means that He has control over all things. God's power is over all things. He is in control of all things, good, evil, and the means and secondary causes that bring those things to His perfect ends. And so the Edomites will not be able to change their destiny. God tells us that this great reversal is going to happen. As the Edomites turned on their family members, we are told that the allies of the Edomites will one day turn on them. They will plunder their goods. They will drive them out of the land. And they will prevail against them as Obadiah declares. And so no amount of planning or conspiring by the Edomites can stop them. It will not be able to help them because even if they were these great military strategists as they thought they were, they still lacked understanding, we read. And their lack of wisdom stands in opposition to the all-wise power of God. And God, being all-wise in His power, makes foolish the wisdom of this world. We are told God confuses the plans of the wicked. 
And so the Edomites cannot surprise God, no matter how wise and smart they thought they were, no matter how impenetrable they thought their fortress was. But then at the end, last week, we concluded, seeing the culmination of the all-wise power of God being found in the cross. The cross being the, the symbol to the world of God's impotence. It's a symbol to the world of God's lack of power. But the cross to the Christian is a sign of God's omnipotence. Of Him being all-powerful. The cross is a, a demonstration to all of the most wise and all-powerful plan of God enacted on behalf of anyone who will come to believe. And it is ultimately through the cross that our Lord ensures us He will do all that He has said. He will bring judgment on the wicked by His power and by that same power He will bring consummation of salvation to the saints. And so that's a recap, a brief recap of what we looked at last week. But now let's say someone was here last week, a visitor, and they sat through the sermon and they heard it. And they might ask then, well, if God is all-powerful, I also have heard that He's all-loving. And so why would God choose to destroy the Edomites with His power? And we've all probably heard people make arguments like this before. If God is all-loving, how could He destroy His own creation? Certainly He would not cast anyone to hell. A good God? No, He would never do it. A loving God, I'm sure, will eventually just look past the sins of everyone and allow everyone into heaven. I mean, really, if God is so great and He's in heaven and He's creator, why would some little sin that His creation commits cause any reaction from God? He's creator, we're creation. We're but little, He's but great. Why would that cause any reaction into God? You see, but the fact of the matter is, is because God is so great, He must respond to sin. He must respond to sin, no matter how insignificant or small you might imagine the sin to be. And so if Sermon 1, we looked at verses 1-9, through which told us that God had planned to destroy the Edomites and that He planned to do it by His power. Sermon 2 today, in verses 10-16, through will tell us why He's doing it. It will hopefully provide answers to those probing questions. And that is why then I've entitled today's sermon as The Justice of God. And so we're going to look at the justice of God under three main points. The first point is the cause of justice. The second point is the reason for justice. And the last is the righteousness of justice. So the cause of justice, the reason for justice, and the righteousness of justice. Now, recently, Katrina and I finished watching a film or a documentary, and it was called American Gospel, Christ Crucified. It was a a very good documentary. It was long, about three hours, but you had all sides of of the debates given in this documentary. So you had godly men and women, you had godly pastors that we all uh, probably are aware of, who were there to uphold the justice of God and defend it, especially in regards to the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. But then you also had secular humanists there who gave their opinion. They said, we were once believers, but in fact it's these texts of Scripture, these justice passages and these passages about God's wrath that actually caused us to to abandon Christianity, 
If this is God, we want nothing to do with them. And then there was a, a third group. They were you know, Christian theologians and pastors who would say, well, we uphold God's love, but uh, we don't think the crucifixion of Christ had anything to do with justice and nothing to do with wrath. It was purely a symbol of God's love. And I think it's these last two groups described here that are the way in which much of this world views these justice and wrath passages. They view them one of two ways. right? Either they, they, they read them and they say, I want nothing to do with a God like this. If this is God, if he, if he executes justice upon the Edomites like this, I want nothing to do with them. Or you have others who would profess Christianity and they would try to do some theological gymnastics around this passage, around these type of passages. They might just reject them altogether. Perhaps they'll say, well, that's the, that's the Old Testament God. The, the New Testament God is much different. He's a loving God. That's the God I serve. Right? But it's texts like this today that make people feel uneasy. Make them feel uneasy. But we shouldn't. We shouldn't feel uneasy about these texts. Nor should we run and hide from unbelievers or questioning Christians who ask us about, about texts just like this. Because yes, as we see this morning in verse 10, God has promised to cut off Edom forever. And in verse 16, He tells them that He will make them as if they have never existed. But does this, in fact, then, make God cruel and unjust to do it? And the answer is a resounding no. Because the cause of God's justice is His holiness. This is point one. The cause of God's justice is His holiness. We're told in verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother, you will be cut off. Our text today describes to us why Edom is being judged. And it's very clear they are being judged because of their sin. They have sinned against their brothers and in sinning against their brothers they have sinned against a holy God, the judge over all the earth. And yet, it's passages like this that help to bring to light the hypocrisy in man and man's self-righteousness. Let me give you an example of what I mean. We've all probably read of the news or, or seen on TV or on the Internet some, some big case, some big crime that occurred. Uh, let's just say a, an intruder breaks into a home and he, he kills a, a wife and three children while the husband's away on, on work as we read this or as we see this being told on the news, we're up in arms. We're angry. We say, that person needs justice. They need to throw the book at them. They need the death penalty. They need life in prison, no parole, whatever it is. Right? We demand justice. And so let's say this defendant is caught and they, they waive their right to a jury trial. And so they just get a bench trial, which means that the, the judge himself is judge and jury. And so let's say there's there's... There's no question that he committed this. All the physical evidence is there. But as the judge hears the story, he hears about what a good guy this this gentleman was. That this is really his only crime he's ever committed. And he was down in life. Things weren't going his way. And so the judge says, you know what? You're a pretty decent guy. And so I'm going to just let you go. Not guilty. Have a fresh start at life. What would be society's response? It would be rage anger. We would say, who is this judge to do that? That is injustice. 
We'd be calling for his job. We'd be calling for more than that. He would have to go into hiding somewhere. You see, we want justice. So why should not the holy judge of all the earth turn, why should he turn a blind eye to the injustice committed by us against him? Does that make any sense? You see, but God must bring justice to the Edomites because if he did not, he would be just like this corrupt judge, accepting and allowing injustice, which would be contrary to who he is as holy God. And so he cannot allow it. Because what God does is always in correspondence to who God is. What he does is always in correspondence to who he is. And he is holy. And so he acts in accordance to his holiness. And justice is an expression of God's holiness. And so he must be just. Now when we say that God is holy, we usually mean one of two things. That uh, when we say he's holy, that he's separate, or he's different from his creation as creator. Or secondly, when we say that he is holy, we are speaking about God's personal ethical purity or his moral excellence. But the first definition is seen in a passage like Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And so please, if you will, turn with me there this morning. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear with me then the reading of God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near me. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you, you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You see, the, the ground that Moses came upon it was just regular old ground. There wasn't anything special about the dirt or the grass on the ground. Right? But what does God say to Moses? He tells him, don't come near me. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. It was the presence of God that made that ground holy. It was God's presence there that separated that ground from all the other ground of the earth. It made it different and it made it uncommon. And this is because God in His being is holy. He is intrinsically holy. And so whatever God touches becomes holy. And being holy in and of Himself, He cannot, nor will He be polluted by sin, either by dwelling with it or approving of it. See, the one who is holy and perfect and just must by nature hate what is evil. Holiness loves righteousness. It loves justice. And so by necessity, it must despise sin and injustice. Just as David declares in Psalm 5, 
For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And we see this, don't we, in the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. Just before in chapter 8, we read that Aaron and his sons are consecrated to the Lord as priests. And then we get to chapter 10 and what happens? We don't have to reread the story. We all know it. They come before the altar of God and what do they do? They burn incense to the Lord. They're offering God worship. Good-intentioned worship. But what happens to them? They offered incense that God had not commanded them and they were killed on the spot. They were consumed by fire right then and there. This is because God cannot nor will He dwell in the presence of sin. And because He is holy, He must be just. And this is why Moses then tells Aaron in Leviticus chapter 10, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And what was Aaron's response? Did he raise his fist toward God and say, why? No, his response was silence. We are told Aaron held his peace because Aaron understood that the holiness of God demanded justice. Demanded justice. In the hymn we so often sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. In stanza three we say, Holy, Holy, Holy. Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, and purity. This is the God that we serve, brothers and sisters. This is the God we serve. A God who may not look upon sinful man. This is why He cannot overlook the rebellion of the Edomites. And why He must give them justice. Because He is holy. And because He is holy, He is also immutably holy. Which means God's holiness doesn't change. His holiness does not change. His holiness never becomes what it once was not. And a lot of times, the world hates this. They want God's holiness to change. They want Him to just look past the sins of people and to allow them into heaven. But boy, we don't want this. We don't want God's holiness to change, do we? Because that's a, that's a scary proposition, isn't it, to think of. That God one day says, I'll give justice. The next day, I'll give injustice. I'll do good one day. I'll do bad the next. I'll show partiality to these people and I'll show favoritism to them. What has God just become? Just like you and I. Corrupt and no longer God. But thankfully, God is immutably holy. His holiness will not change. And you can think of the the comfort and encouragement that gave to the Israelites as they are being read this word. That God will not allow injustice to go unpunished. God will not let the injustice that occurs against you and I, His people, set apart His church to go unpunished. And yet we are not to seek retributive justice. Retributive justice being that justice by which we repay the wicked with the penalty that is due them. That's not for us to do. God says vengeance is mine. He will repay the wicked with what they deserve. And that's exactly what all will get who have rejected His Son. What they deserve. He will give them justice. 
But what's funny about this is that we live in a world that's really merit-based, don't we? Everything we do is, is really merit-based. Uh, at home, if the, if the kids behave, they get rewarded. If not, they get punished. At school, if the kids uh, listen and do well, they get good grades. If not, they get poor grades. In our jobs, if we go to work and we work hard, usually it's recognized. You maybe get promotions. If you're lazy and you, you skip work half the week, you usually are going to get fired. Right? And that's what we want, don't we? We want it to be merit-based. If we work hard, we say, well, why does that person get a promotion and not I? I work way harder than they did. I can do way more than them. I'm deserving of it. Give me what I deserve. And yet, brothers and sisters, isn't it funny when we talk about the, the justice of God, no longer is anyone saying, give me what I deserve. No one wants what they've earned. Justice is what we've all merited for our sinfulness against God. And you think God's justice then, what we earned, we'd be happy with. But no, now all of a sudden we don't want justice. Rather, we demand grace and mercy. So often, even ministers who stand up in the pulpit preach that God must give everyone grace and mercy and not justice. You see, but grace by definition isn't something that we can earn or merit. It is something that is freely given to us by another. Grace and mercy isn't something that we can lay claim to and say is ours because we've earned it. Neither is it something that we can divvy up. I can't give grace, give grace, give grace if God doesn't give grace. It is God who gives the grace. This is why the unbeliever would do well to never look up to God and say, God, give me what I deserve. Because what we deserve is justice. And justice for each of us means death and immediate death. That is strict justice. This is point two. Then the reason for justice. And the reason for justice is sin. And so let's together take a look at what sin the Edomites are guilty of. So first in verse 10, what is it that we see? We see that they are accused of doing violence to their brother Jacob. And that's what makes it all the worse, isn't it, brothers and sisters? They did violence to their own family. To their own family. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7, God says to the Israelites, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. The Edomites and the Israelites were kinsmen. Really, they're cousins. We said last week, because they descend from Jacob and Esau. And so how much more heinous the sin committed against one another as they are family. Yet what do we read in verse 11? Look to me there, please. On the day that you stand aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Obadiah says you just stood there. You just stood there as your own family is being trampled upon and defeated by foreigners. You allow foreigners to do this to your own family. What a heinous crime. Moving into verses 12 through 14, then Obadiah changes from speaking of events as past as speaking of these events as if they have yet to occur. Yet he's speaking almost rhetorically. And so look with me at verse 12. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. 
You see, not only was their sin in the omission of not aiding their family, but their sin was also in gloating over Israel's misery. They They boasted in the fact that Israel was being destroyed. And we read in Psalm 137, verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. That is what they were saying as the Babylonians were destroying Israel. And yet this sin is not uncommon in our own day, is it? There's large portions of the population who love this type of thing. As we grew up, probably, we, we've seen fights break out and what happens? A circle forms around it, right? And what, everyone cheers it on. They love to see the humiliation of others. We like to see others in pain and punishment and misery at their expense and for our delight and for our enjoyment. But as Christians, we are not to join in the sinful chorus of applause or take pleasure in sinful acts. Rather, we are the ones who are to be stepping in and offering aid and helping. Or if we can't, we're to get someone who's able to do such. And this is what the Edomites were guilty of here in verse 12. They did no such thing. They allowed it to happen. They allowed these foreigners to come and to destroy their family members. But the Edomites weren't just helpless bystanders either. We're told in verse 13, Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. See, the Edomites just weren't bystanders. They actually went into Jerusalem after it was overrun and they took part in the looting of their goods. They took from their wealth. They took which was not theirs. They stole from their brothers. And yet this wasn't even the most heinous of their crimes. What do we read in verse 14? Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off the fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. You see what's being described here is what we, we touched on last week. As the Israelites are running away trying to flee to safety, what happens? The Edomites stand in the roads and they stop them from escaping. They stop them and they turn them back over to their captors to face the sword, to face death. What a heinous crime. What grave sin. And so what is our Lord's response in verse 15? He says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. God's response is, don't complain now. You've reaped what you've sown. What you have done to your family shall now be done to you. This is what you have earned. Your sin has earned you my justice. And what response could anyone offer? What response could any of us offer when God says, your sin is deserving of my justice? None. There is nothing that we can say. We've already been told by Paul in in Romans, right? That the wages of sin is death. And Paul is simply repeating what we read in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. The day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. 
punishment for sin has always been God's justice, which is death, which is what we deserve. And yet, if we go back to that visitor that we encountered earlier in our sermon, who said, if God is all loving, how can He destroy anyone? That person having sat through the sermon today may, may then ask, well, if what you say is true, if all sin is deserving of justice, well then shouldn't everyone get justice? And the answer is yes, we should. We should all get justice. But we all don't. This is point three. The righteousness of justice. You see, brothers and sisters, God's justice is perfect. The innocent will never be punished. The innocent can never say, God punished me. There is no injustice with God. And Abraham recognizes, didn't he, in Genesis chapter 18. Remember when he implores God, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, you do not destroy it. If there are 40 or 30 or 20 or 10, If there are any righteous, do not destroy it, God. He he implores them. And what does he say in verse 25? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? With the implied answer, of course he will. God will always do what is right, which means he will never let the guilty walk free, which is why he cannot allow the Edomites to go unpunished. As Obadiah says then in verse 16, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. Right Here we see Obadiah says that they will drink and swallow as if they've never existed. Yet not only here is he talking about the Edomites, but now he has expanded what he's declaring and the judgment he's pronouncing to all the nations we see. He includes all the nations. As we return to the, the day of the Lord here, right, brings us back to First Thessalonians, and we'll approach it again in Second Thessalonians, the day of the Lord here, where every nation symbolized by Edom will perish, as Almighty God inflicts vengeance on those who have afflicted his people. And yet, what is the symbolism of this drinking? For we see drinking spoken of three times here. So it, it tells us, perk your, perk your ears up and, and listen to what I'm saying. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it gives us a clue into what he means when he talks about drinking and swallowing. He says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he will pour, and he will pour out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Or they'll, they'll drink all its remnants. They'll, they'll finish the cup completely. Every last drop. And the drinking of this cup symbolizes the very thing that the ungodly will experience when Christ returns, which is an expression of that perfect justice, being God's wrath. And He will be just in giving them this as a recompense for their sin. Yet, this doesn't answer the question that if God is just and we are all sinners, shouldn't we all get this? Shouldn't we all drink of this cup of wrath? And the answer is yes, but... There is a but. And that but is mercy. Mercy found in the cross where Jesus Christ hung. It is the cross here that I heard it said where justice and mercy kiss. Justice and mercy kiss at the cross. It is at the cross where God can still be just and at the same time pardon sinners. 
And how can this be? Well, we can look at ver- uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 38 and 39. They're 39 through 42, excuse me. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 42. We read this. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We see, brothers and sisters, it is at the cross that the wrath that the Edomites and the nations will experience when he returns, it is that wrath at the cross that Jesus drank for you and I. It is at the cross Christ bore the wrath due you and I and in our stead received the justice that we deserve. And through Christ, God now gives to us mercy. Mercy, which means receiving that which we do not deserve. This is why people who say that the cross is all love do not understand the cross. The cross is love, yes, but the cross also is more than that. For why does, does any of us need grace or mercy if the cross be not also justice? We don't need mercy if God is just going to overpass the sins of His people and not give out justice. You see, but God must give justice because sin and rebellion is an affront to the holiness of God and holiness is deserving of death. And yet Christ merited life. Christ merited life. And He took upon Himself the justice for you and I here today if we believe. And He has given to us mercy and new life. You see, it is at the the cross at Calvary where we see the righteousness of justice. As no one ever in the history of the world, past, present, or future, can say that God has been unjust to them. As R.C. Sproul once said, you either get justice or you get mercy, but you never get injustice with God. Justice or mercy, never injustice. And yet, do not allow this fact that we have received mercy and not justice be a source of pride or boasting. As I also read R.C. Sproul once say that over decades of teaching, he had countless students come up to him over the years and say, you know what, Mr. Sproul, never been able to understand why God doesn't just save everyone. And he said over those decades of teaching, only one student ever came up to him and said, Professor Sproul, I can't understand why God saved me. And so often, brothers and sisters, I think that we have the mindset of those countless other students. A lot of times I think we feel, and Christians in general feel, that we are entitled to God's mercy. And we are not. We are not entitled to His mercy. We deserve God's justice. 
But Christ has made a way. This is the good news. And so as we close, I will leave you with some parting words from the Apostle Paul, which come from Romans chapter 3. Please hear with me these words from Paul. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that what? So that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we humbly come before You after reading a text such as this as we see that we are deserving of death for our sin. That is what justice means. And yet, Father, You have given us not justice, but mercy and grace. And so, Father, we come on bended knee before You, prostrated, so enamored with Your glory and Your kindness and Your love. And we thank You for it. We are so thankful, Father, for what You have given to us. You have given us what we do not deserve. And so we have come before You to praise Your holy name, to ascribe to You all glory and honor. And so, Father, we ask that You would help us to do this more and more, that we might each day recognize that we are but guilty sinners and we have only been freed of that guilt through the cross of Christ. And so let us not take pride or boast in ourselves, but let us boast in the One who has fulfilled the law, that is Christ Jesus our Savior. And so, Father, we come before You and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.